This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're learning all about how to build a podcast from scratch. Joining me on the Future of Media sofa, I have Press Gazette Associate Editor Will Turville. Hello, Dom. Hey, Will. And I, first of all, I'd like to apologise because I know you wanted to call this the podcast on podcasts, but I'm afraid we podcast that, podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that ship sailed. Yeah, we did another one, didn't we? Yeah. At least another one. The other thing I need to say to you is why why couldn't we do this at the beginning of the run? This is what we need to know, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, we should have done. But it's not too late. It's not too late. And we're always learning. So who have we got on as our expert witness this week? Andrew Harrison, who is the co-founder and boss, who is the boss of Podmasters. And what are Podmasters? What are Podmasters? Podmasters is an independent podcast production company that makes shows including Oh God, What Now? Which was previously called Romaniacs and The Bunker. And actually, full disclosure, the reason I came into this podcast was because I recently appeared on The Bunker and I met Andrew Harrison, who wasn't interviewing me, but was in the office and got chatting with him. And I said, oh, you should definitely come onto our podcast because I think I learned a lot and I thought our listeners could learn a lot as well. Cool. I know from what you've told me about the interview so far, we are going to learn a lot of useful stuff. So brilliant. But before we get onto that, let's just find out what do we know? What do we know about podcasts? Shall I start or do you want to start? I'd be interested to know, actually, what is your favourite podcast? You actually revealed this last week. The rest is history. Have you got any others? Okay, I'll get on to that. I feel like we know quite a lot about podcasts. Not least we've been doing one now for more than six months. But we've been writing a lot about podcasts on Press Gazette in the last six months. Definitely more than we've ever done before. And I think the things we know include the following. Podcasts was the area that publishers said they were most likely to invest in this year in a Reuters Institute survey of 300 media leaders, which they did at the end of last year. So it's one of our big themes for the year, podcasts, along with newsletters and paywalls. We know that numerous publishers have got seriously big podcast audiences now. I'm thinking the Telegraph Ukraine podcast, 
16 million listens so far. The News Agents, which is global, big sort of star-studded daily news podcast, 10 million listens, 10 million downloads. So they're getting some seriously big audiences. And the other thing I feel I know is that podcasts seem to be becoming quite lucrative for publishers in the sense that Tortoise the uh, Slow News publisher, which launched a few years ago, they said they, they mainly do podcasts now, and they said their podcast wing is profitable. And I know that Global, the radio company, are investing a huge amount in podcasts because they see that as a good way to make money. And then the final thing I'm going to say about podcasts is I think the reason they work for publishers is that they give you a similar level of engagement to print in the sense you're getting someone for a good 20, 30 minutes. And they work quite well commercially because you know who the person is often, especially if they've logged in to your player, as they do with the global player. And it's quite a good opportunity to advertise to them because they're fully engaged in what's going on. Is that fair? I think that's all fair. I would call you out on the newsagents figure. The 10 million figure was actually from December and their latest is 24 million downloads since they launched in September last year. So just to add to that, I think that's a really good summary of why podcasts are exciting and an area of investment for news publishers. I would add that maybe another reason they're quite a good area to invest in is because they're quite a cheap area to invest in. That's fair to say. I think lots of people say that, you know, you can launch podcasts without too much investment compared with, say, if you were launching, I don't know, a website from scratch and you wanted to make it a, a very professional, good website. So, yeah, I think that's part of it as well. And I'd say as a journalist and someone who enjoys journalising, which is a word I use, they offer an exciting new medium on which you can be creative and do some really interesting stuff. And there seems to be, it's exciting, isn't it, isn't it, when there's an area of the journalism sector that's growing and that there's lots of investment, lots of opportunities, lots of new jobs coming up. So yeah, it's great to see this area flourishing at the moment. The other thing I've written down is smart speakers, because they kind of dovetail quite nicely with that other new technology, don't they? In the sense that I can go into my kitchen and ask my smart speaker to play the latest news agents podcast so it gets us on smart speakers it also gets us onto different platforms as well it helps us grow audience because uh, like this podcast is on all the all the various podcast outlets you can think of audible except for bbc sounds yes we'll get i think we get onto that later <laughs> don't we so let's get into it i guess lots of listeners will be thinking great let's launch a podcast it's a good thing to do i'm sold how do you build that build an audience, build a podcast from scratch, especially when it's such a crowded market because people have got lots of podcasts they listen to now, haven't they? I know I do. Yeah, that's definitely something that I wanted to ask Andrew Harrison about because, as I said, he and his co-founder launched this podcast for Maniacs with... he. Fun story, this will probably be the headline of the piece on Press Gazette. He launched it using his PPI compensation money and that's how he was able to launch it and just give it a bit of a go. So he launched it in 2017, what, roughly more than six months after the EU referendum. He was, a, obviously, as the name suggests, a Romaniac, as were the other people who were involved in it. It proved a massive success. And, yeah, it's a dream, isn't it, that you just do something fun and then all of a sudden you're doing well and you've made a business out of it and now he's got all of these other shows. So it's a really interesting story and hopefully lots of our listeners will be able to listen to it and be inspired by Andrew Harrison's story. 
Brilliant. Let's get into the interview then. Let's hear what he had to say. How did you kick it off? I kicked it off by just asking him to explain a little bit about him. So he's a former music magazine journalist and I was interested to know how he transitioned from music magazine journalist into a man running an independent podcast business. I got started in music magazines, which is always my dream. Ever since I was a little child, I always wanted to be a journalist. And I, music was my thing. And I always wanted to write for, for the music press. And luckily enough, just as I was finishing university in Leeds, the kind of post-Q magazine boom was happening. So I pretty much finished my finals on the Friday. And on the Monday was on a plane to San Francisco to interview UB40 for Select magazine, which was launching, which I became the editor of. And I had a long and very fun time in music magazines. Edited Q magazine twice, Mixmag twice. Worked on the Word magazine with Mark Ellen and Dave Hepworth, who had founded Q and founded Mojo. But the whole sector, as you'll be well aware, just kind of rose and fell and I felt like I'd been there almost the entire history of the Colour Monthly magazine and by by the early 2000s I was editing Q for a second time it was just really very apparent that this sector didn't really have a future and we had a bit of a parting of the ways as I was working with a very good team who were doing their absolute utmost to keep Q afloat but it was uh, the writing was on the wall and I'd, and at Q, one of the guys on the business side was Martin Botosh, who's now my business partner in Podmasters. And we always said, whatever happens, we'll work together on something or other. And we just experimented with podcasts in the, in the mid-2010s. We launched a pop culture podcast called Big Mouth, which was tremendous fun. Didn't really get very many listens, but it enabled us to find our way around podcasting. What made it work? What were the dynamics? How to physically do it? How to turn the kind of ideas that I would have for print into an audio proposition? And we decided that we we needed something alongside it. It ought to contrast but have a similar feel to Big Mouth. And it ought to be about something we were all obsessed with, and that thing was Brexit. So mm. we launched, on a whim, Romaniacs, with Ian Dunst and Doreen Linsky and Nomi Smith and Ross Taylor and then Alex Andreo. And we were amazed at how quickly it took off. We had 10,000 listens within a week, 20,000. And before long, we were doing about forty to 50,000 on a weekly podcast purely about how dreadful Brexit was. And it was... I think we found a way of providing the catharsis for an awful lot of people who were not hearing that anywhere else. The major thing that they would talk about was um, the kind of fake balance that was imposed upon most media by Ofcom rules. You have to balance the argument. And there was nobody able, legally able, to tell the truth as these listeners saw it. So we, that was the kind of making of us. We built this thing up to, we had a couple of editions, did 100,000 plays. We interviewed Tony Blair and Nick Clegg and also brought in really fun people as well, like Al Murray and mm. Mark Gatiss and Chris Addison. Basically, if you were a Romaniac, you were interested in us and we were interested in you. And it was become the centrepiece of the business. We rebranded it because obviously can't remain in the EU anymore. We've left the EU. So we racked our brains and we changed the name to, oh, God, what now? Because that mm. seemed to sum up the spirit of the times. And then around that, we've launched lots of other podcasts. We've got a daily political explainer called The Bunker, where we just go into one item on a kind of 20-minute deep dive. We have a documentary series called Doomsday Watch with Arthur Snell, who is a former diplomat who has he's been across the world in, in points and kind of flashpoints, border areas. And he looks at the threats to global civility and global peace that maybe don't get the attention they ought to get. We also do co-productions with Steve Richards' Rock and Roll Politics, origin story with Ian Dunst and Dorian Linsky. So we have a kind of really big mixed business. And I'm 
really glad that we've been able to recruit a lot of people. We've got recruited a lot of young audio professionals, some of them in their first job. And it to me, it feels like we're able to give the same shot to these people that I got in 1990 when there was no particularly good reason to give me a job. But I got a chance and it worked out. And we've managed to assemble a pretty, pretty talented young team. Mm. And I'm like, I'm now the old guy in the room, which is <laughs> quite fun. When exactly did you launch Romaniacs? Romaniacs was launched in 2017, which you might think is a little bit late. Perhaps if we'd launched it 18 months earlier, we would have prevented Brexit. We didn't really have the... You, you, you can't see the future. It was it, it, it felt that the trajectory of British politics had bent so closely towards the crazy that you just needed something that could express that frustration and that kind of anger. And when we set it up, we said to the the core panellists, which is Dorian, Ian and Peter Collins, who was part of the early team, we'll pay you when we can pay you. It really was one of those things because we had no idea whether we'd get zero listeners. It, it might have been me and Andrew Adonis and that was it, listening to the podcast. Hmm. But very quickly, we were able to not just accrue money, the standard advertising routes, but we launched a Patreon, a crowdfunder where we essentially say to the listeners, if you like the podcast, you'll always be able to listen to it for free. It's never going to be paid, never going to be charged for. But if you like us, you want to give us £3 a month, we'd really appreciate it. You want to give us £5 a month, we'll really appreciate it. And we'll send you a coffee mug. £10 a month, all that in a T-shirt. And people really bought into it. We've had fantastic response. And the Patreon people have been the core of what we've done. And we have launched patrons around all of our other podcasts people can support the one that they like we've also just recently launched an all you can eat super subscription on apple so if you go to apple podcasts for a single fee you can get all of our podcasts early with no ads all benefits there through the apple podcast app so we found that there are lots of diverse ways of funding it we also do live shows and we do we've during the pandemic we did live streams which were great so you got to see the panelists sitting at home in in whatever ratty t-shirt they had lying around it's interesting to think about Patreon is that you are both building a revenue stream, but you're also building a community. So the stuff that people often find hard to do, we've built a community over here through social media, and we've built revenue streams over here through advertising or sponsorship. Because they're brought together, you've got something that is simultaneously a conduit to your core, most passionate listeners, a way for them not so much to be charged for it as to support it. They like backing us and that's great that's a really good feeling and you've got a way to communicate with them as well so we found it's really fitted the podcast model very well and also you've got a, you, we can do exclusive editions for them and things like that you also sell merch we do merch yes people like our merch somebody tweeted they've got the full set of the mugs and we're like okay we'll see our antiques roadshow in the year 2080 when this <laughs> is when uh, whatever generation clone uh, fiona bruce is saying that's quite, quite a lot of money that so yeah that and the t-shirts it's been really fun it's particularly fun when i go to say glastonbury or latitude and you will occasionally see an oh god what now t-shirt or a romaniacs t-shirt oh, there you go <laughs> and so were you all in straight away when you launched Romaniacs or did you have to wait to see yourself whether it was going to become a thing? Uh, we did it financially. We did it very cheaply. In fact, the, the key investor at the, at the beginning of the whole thing was the Halifax Building Society, which refunded me my PPI that had been overcharging me. And I thought, we can go and spend this on a big holiday or 
it can be the seed money for the company, and that paid for studios and initial expenses and eventually got us off the ground. So the PPI scandal has actually produced one good thing, which is our podcast company. Like I say, the people that we have worked with, we'll pay you when we can. And they understood that it was being done. A, it was a flyer, really. It might have worked, it might not have worked. But luckily, we've got to a position where I think we, we pay quite competitively, actually. We, it's become core income for a lot of our presenters and our panellists, many of whom have found the, the, uh, the river drying up in traditional media. Freelance budgets have gone right down in newspapers, magazines. They're barely there anymore. It's been a great way to get, take all that expertise and find new ways of using it. We found certain people like Dorian. I'd worked him for years as a writer, but he's really blossomed as a presenter. I had no idea that he'd turn out to be so good, and I'm really delighted that he has. He's become a really good audio guy. And it is, it's also just really refreshing because I'm imagining another timeline where magazines hadn't collapsed and I was 30 years in the game and I was probably like the old guy who's run out of ideas. And it's really nice to be an entirely new, an entirely new frontier of media you just start to feel inspired and energised again. How do you launch a podcast like Romaniacs when you are yourself not part of a large media group? Presumably it's become easier now to launch these other new podcasts because you've built up the expertise and the listener base. But how did you launch Romaniacs then from the ground? When we launched in 2017, podcasting hadn't developed quite so much as it had now. It was a little bit more of a of an open wild frontier. Now you do see quite a lot of the major companies and not just major companies, but you'll see the top of the chart is usually quite crammed with recognizable faces. And there's a kind of a Premier League approach, which is silent the biggest name that you can. And you'll probably get a top five or a number one podcast. I'm not privy to the books there. I don't know how much money is going straight out the door after it's come in from advertising. But from our point of view, a proudly independent outfit, we're not part of any big company and we watch our pennies very closely and we are we're very aware that in podcasting it's not like launching a magazine or a television program where instant success is required and it has to be very public it has to be you have to be very visibly hitting the mark and bringing in the money in podcasting there's an opportunity to just grow your audience organically to do it by word of mouth is the best marketing tool we've had and we found launching our own podcasts that's the best way to shift a new podcast is a recommendation on a podcast you, that, that you already like, which is why we now have a kind of a network effect through all of our podcasts we could cross-promote. And we can. We also do a bit of a Marvel Cinematic Universe thing of having people do guest appearances from one podcast in another, crossover editions. But in terms of how do you launch one from a standing start, if you're not already where we are, um, I would say the great thing about the podcasting sector is there's a big lack of gatekeepers. So when I was in my magazine days, you spent your whole time worrying about W. H. Smith. You spent your whole time worried about Holster. You, you spent your whole time worrying about could you get buy-in on the shelf. You weren't really thinking primarily. You're thinking about the reader all the time. But at the back of your mind is, I've got to get this past some sales guy who's got targets to meet. And with, with podcasting, it's if you can launch with a compelling proposition, a compelling title, a tile that looks really admissible, if you can build in a few other things, okay, it might be some celebrities who'd make it work, or it may be that you're going into a virgin sector that you've identified, then you can punch your weight with uh, with Global or the BBC or whomever. It's it, it's pretty meritocratic in that respect. So what we found is that the sector is really receptive to 
really good ideas. That might not be the case forever. It may be we, we, as the sector matures and it gets more crowded, it may become necessary to employ in more of the kind of straightforward dark arts of marketing and so on. But so far, we've been we've found that we're able to get a healthy listenership away, primarily by launching alongside pre-existing podcasts with a, with a strong listenership and just saying, you might like this, you might like this, you might like this. And it's worked so far. How daunted were you, are you by... The, just by the fact that there are all these large media companies that, like you were saying, 2017, it wasn't so much of a developed sector in the UK, certainly. It was quite big in the US then, but the UK is really caught up now, and now every big media company, every big media brand wants in on podcasts. How does a how does an indie company like yours survive and thrive with that level of competition? I think, firstly, the arrival of the big brands has just helped grow podcasting anyway so the more people listen to podcasts the better for everybody the more it just grows the universe of listeners and i think podcasts are a bit like watching streaming television after you've got into them linear television just doesn't do it anymore you and i know this even from the most conservative media users i know are my parents and for them it's all netflix and amazon and apple tv now they barely watch the bbc and they target bbc viewers in terms of how do we compete with giant launch from a giant media conglomeration we tend to build our shows as podcast only and because we're not from an audio background we don't have radio pre radio preconceptions right so a lot of what we see from big brands is really a radio show feels like a radio show sound design is like a radio show the the kind of view of the world is the thought that at the back of your mind you're going to have to go to the travel it tends not to go into the longer deeper and also more convivial more team-based thing that makes a really good podcast tick we realized pretty soon after launching Romaniacs that people were coming for the Brexit because nobody else was talking what they were talking about. But they were actually staying for the team and the mix of people and the sense of humour. And the fact that those people could say the things they can't say on the radio. We have political correspondents who can take an extremely definite angle on something. They can lose their temper and swear if they want, which the listeners quite like. So, you know, the fact that we are not coming at it, our background's not in radio, our background's not in, here's how you make a half-hour radio show, here's how you make a rolling news show. We look at every idea fresh. We look at every format fresh. And that seems to give us a bit of a bit of standout in the the very crowded app window where you're in any category, you're looking at hundreds of options. And we've managed to express through what through our titles. But episode titles are really important. We put a lot of thought into that. The thing that I enjoyed most in the magazines is writing the headlines because you could just compress so much meaning into a handful of words, into a clever pun, into a play on words. And we try to do that with the episode titles. And I see quite a lot of competitors don't. They, they tend to go for the straight SEO approach. And we found that our listeners really do like a kind of a characterful title as well as a characterful team and a characterful set of ideas. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
The BBC seems increasingly interested in podcasts and it's an audio powerhouse already. And this is going back to my previous question in a way, but longer term, how can you or anybody else, frankly, compete with a behemoth like the BBC in audio? This is the second time in my working career that I've seen the BBC behemoth effect in a market causing, I've got to say, problems. When I was in magazines, we would constantly have this issue of it was a very weird period of my life when I was looking after smash hits and I'm not a very smash hits guy but I was it was uh, it was on my desk and at the end of every edition of Top of the Pops which was then going will be an advert for Top of the Pops magazine going out to then probably about five or six million viewers and at the bottom of the screen if you had an electron microscope you could see the words other music magazines are available so Top of the Pops magazine had this insane unfair advantage over smash hits and I think number one was still going then and I'm not going to say it finished them off, but it certainly didn't help them, and it put them into a spiral from which they never really recovered. Similarly, other BBC magazines had this unfair advantage, which really put the independent sector on the back foot in a way that they simply couldn't compete with. I think we're getting to a similar point there with sounds, because for a lot of people who are maybe not as media adventurous as, as maybe others are, BBC Sounds is podcasting. It's the universe of podcasting. It's where all the podcasts are, and there aren't any other podcasts. It is advertised to them regularly on radio and television. It's pushed through the BBC website. It is the fact that the what was iPlayer Radio and Sounds have been merged, live streaming radio and podcasts and sort of listen again has all been merged into the one thing. So the BBC is very successfully creating a situation where it's the one stop for audio. But what that means is that independent broadcasting is disadvantaged. It means that people are going to expect from podcasting what they get from BBC Radio. Now, I'm a huge fan and a huge proponent of the BBC, and I think that what this government in particular has been trying to do to it is shameful, and I'm very much hoping that the next government reverses the decisions on the licence fee. That said, I don't think we're getting a fair crack of the whip in podcasting. I think there's a a real danger that... um, a kind of a, a lid will be put on the ability of independent podcasting to grow. And there is precedent for the BBC being compelled to support independent producers. We've seen BBC television compelled to use independent production companies to bring life to some of their existing properties, to very much on the Channel 4 publisher model, the original Channel 4 model, when it was the you know, Channel 4 won't make any programmes at all. It will simply commission and publish the productions of independent companies. I think there's an absolute case that sounds ought to be opened up to independent podcasts, that you ought to be able to see Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart or The Rest is History or Guardian Football Weekly or our podcasts in the sounds window because that's where people are going it's not really a, akin to, say, Radio 2 or BBC 3. It's akin to a newsstand. And if the BBC owns one of the biggest newsstands, not the biggest, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are bigger, but if the BBC owns one of the biggest newsstands in the country, why would it only sell BBC product? Interesting. What's your favourite BBC podcast? Well, actually, ironically enough, I enjoy the BBC for actual real-time radio more than, than it's podcasting. So I'm, I'll always listen to 606. The Today programme in the morning, although it sometimes drives me mad, is kind of part of my ritual. So the BBC is really good at real-time radio and reactive stuff and rolling news. For many of the things that are high on the podcast chart from the BBC are actually listen again for, say, Desert Island Discs or whatever. So, you know, that's absolutely fine. And that's where they should be. And I strongly believe that ultimately the BBC will be producing almost all of its non-news, non-live content for permanent catch-up. 
But that doesn't mean that they should have a monopoly on, on catch-up. We really need to be opening up sounds to independent producers so that people get to see the full richness of the sector. What are your favourite podcasts apart from your own? My favourite podcast is the Slate, the Slate Political Gab Fest from Slate, which is basically my gateway drug to podcasting. That was the one that I'd been listening to it for years before we, we launched Big Mouth even. And I just thought it was it's still going and it's still really good because this is it's serious politics with a great sense of humour. It's like being it's it's like sitting around the table in a pub or in a coffee shop with the smartest people, but also the most enjoyable people that you could hang out with. And we've certainly been strongly inspired hem, hem, by what they're doing in, in many ways with Romaniacs. It was like we should do something like that except with Brexit. And given the kind of massively polarised nature of American TV news and the incredibly sort of shrill pitch of it across the board, across the political spectrum, it's really pitched at, at screaming volume. Slate is actually pretty chilled and relaxed and can look at the madness of American politics with certainly with a cool eye, but also with a really good sense of humour. But that will be my favourite. What, in general, what makes for a good podcast? What are the traits that make up a good podcast and what makes a bad podcast, would you say? There are multiple kinds of good podcasts. The ones that we make depend heavily on the chemistry between the panellists and the interviewees and and the anchor because pe- people essentially want to spend time with people that they like, who like things that they like and have interesting opinions. However, there are fantastic fully scripted podcasts. There are fantastic impressionistic podcasts. For me, the thing that unites them all, is, that the really good ones, is that they're thinking about the listener first and they're imagining where the listener is when they're listening. So people tend to forget that podcasts are not just incredibly intimate, but they are, they're very high attention products, right? You don't just wander into the kitchen, turn the radio on and wander off with a podcast. With, uh, with broadcast radio, the key, um, whether it's music radio or speech radio, the key challenge is, for God's sake, don't let them turn over. People just listen in a totally different way with podcasts. You make an active decision. You put your earbuds in. You say, I've got to dedicate this time listening to this podcast. And often you'll build it into a part of your week. It'll be like, okay, in my case, Thursday nights is when I listen to a Slate Political Podcast and cook to dinner. And I really it, it, it adds value to otherwise fairly mundane time. So the really good podcasts understand that they've got to be the favorite thing of the week. You've got to look forward to Sunday morning, I'm walking the dog, the, my favourite podcast is out. And we see this across all of our podcasts, even the ones that we've brought in from elsewhere, like Steve Phillips' Rock and Roll Politics. His listeners are fanatical and they really look forward to it coming out. And if there's ever a glitch and it doesn't, they're on Twitter go, where is it? So I think that's the thing that makes a really good podcast is understanding that somebody has made a, a, an active decision to listen to this and you need to reward it. You can't, in my, my bugbear is podcasts that take 20 minutes to get started. When people say, hello, how was your trip to the studio? Oh, it was terrible. The bus broke down. Ha ha, how's things? Hmm. What have you been up to at the weekend? Just get to the point. It's, it surprises me how many kind of waffly podcasts there are out there. Podcasts, like I say, they add value to valueless time. And the very last thing you can do is be wasting that, that time that people have allotted to your stuff. So podcasts have obviously grown in popularity. My parents recently started listening to them, which is new. What is that replacing in terms of people's time? I think it's replacing passive media. I think it is... I don't think they're listening to podcasts instead of doing something else. I think they're listening to podcasts instead of listening to filler media. I think they're replacing the kind of half-turned-down radio voice in the background in the kitchen that they're not really paying attention to. I think they're... In some respects, because the commute is a massive part of podcast listening, in some respects, it's replacing gazing out the window. In other respects, it is replacing 
reading a book or a paper on the on the bus. But it's also podcasts are also getting themselves into time where media consumption didn't traditionally take place. Lots of people listen while running. I know people who listen while bathing the kids, and I'm not sure I would necessarily want the kids listening to our podcast with some of our presenters getting a bit worked up over certain <laughs> things, but it does happen. So in terms of what's it replacing for the older listener, I think it's I think it's replacing less good stuff. Because as with streaming television, people have realized that you don't just have to watch what happens to be served up at nine o'clock on a terrestrial channel or even nine o'clock on a satellite channel. You can go out there and really search out something of very high quality. We are, it's a cliche to say we're in a golden age of television. Uh, I'm not sure that people are necessarily watching more television. They're just watching better television. And I think that's happening with audio as well. Because podcasts are so niche, you can find something that absolutely fits your interest. And yet that niche will be global because all podcasts are available all around the world you can find something that really delivers just even on your little tiny interest area. Mm. In terms of revenues and the the commercial viability of the sector, there's this PwC report that came out around a year ago, I think it was, that said that the UK podcast market would have ad revenues of £64 million by 2025, which sounds like a lot, but then it's not massive when you compare that with the US market and with some other areas of the media. What are you thinking now? I mean, advertising is presumably part of your revenue pie, as it were. How big is it compared with Patreon? Well, I can't away too many intensely secret business things. They're both roughly equally, equal importance to us, not because they're the same amount, but because we pay equal attention to them. Patreon is massively important because it's the direct relationship with the core listener, and it's a barometer of how you're doing. And we've been really glad to see that even... You know, we've continued to grow our Patreons on all the podcasts, even though Brexit happened, even though we failed in job one, stop Brexit, it didn't stop people supporting the podcast because they like the podcast in its own right. So we put a lot of effort and thought into maintaining that because it's the most important relationship that we have. Advertising, however, grows and we've been getting a lot of commercial reads. The thing we say, hello, this podcast is brought to you by such and such. And we've seen growth in those. We've seen growth in food and drink, in kind of medicine and mental health services, actually. It's been quite big. Finance, a lot of this is, it's like big, both big brands and also new launch insurgent brands are realizing that podcasts are very useful because they are high attention audio. Unlike most radio, which with the best one in the world can be fairly low attention audio, this is absolute intent listening. And also it's very trust-based. So if a, if a presenter that you know and like and have a relationship with is endorsing something, that's quite a powerful and a useful thing. And we're pretty rigorous about what we will and won't endorse. We've had approaches from things that aren't quite right. We don't take betting ads because we don't really think it fits with our profile. Um, but other things, we take adverts for beer and wine clubs because we use and endorse beer and wine and are big fans of it. And it's a good fit. In terms of the commercial growth potential, if is that was that 64 million price waterhouse coopers was that the figure yeah that seems really low to me because i'm not saying we're making 64 million a year but we are we're just one company and we are doing pretty well to the extent that we're profitable and we're able to employ people i would imagine that would grow quite a lot interesting and how many downloads do you get per month week what's your, we what are your latest are figures giving 1.6 to 1.7 million a month. We think 2 million is in sight. We've got some launch ideas coming up. We've also found it interesting to play around with the frequency because daily podcasts, it turns out, are really powerful. People can build it into their routine and you can treat it almost as a channel. A weekly podcast is a program. A daily podcast is a channel featuring 
many individual programs on a single theme plus you've got seven times the frequency for for promotion for cross promotion for advertising and so forth so there's a lot of plasticity there and you can develop some interesting things around it hmm. and final question not based on science but based on an observation that i made while looking through the podcast charts in the uk which i know aren't always that reliable in some ways but it seems to me that a lot of the podcasts that especially in the news area that do well and are popular are like your podcasts and the news agents and the rest is politics and i'd say that those are reasonably especially when you compare them with newspapers which press gazette spends a lot of time thinking about newspapers when you compare them with newspapers they're reasonably left-leaning why is that and is there a big market? Is there a big audience demand that's not being fed in podcasts for for right leaning podcasts? Where is the the Daily Mail podcast? There are right right leaning podcasts. There's Planet Normal with Alison Pearson from the Telegraph. The strange thing actually is because the podcast chart is global. You will see an awful lot of right-wing podcasts, but they're all from America. It's all Ben Shapiro and people like that, which bleed across to ours. The The chart algorithm is a strange one. It's not purely on listens. It's on rate of change and all that kind of stuff. I guess the main reason for that is that podcasts are a slightly younger medium, maybe, than print newspapers are. And you lean more liberal the younger you are. It could be possibly also be because it's new it's a new medium and the adventurous minded tend to be more progressive that said james dellingpole i believe has a podcast there's mogs podcast there are there, there are a lot of right-wing podcasts out there there's a, i think gb news seems to be doing quite a lot as well and some of them perform well and some of them don't the fact that the top end of the chart is perhaps populated by the woke tofurati like us just indicates that perhaps forward-thinking people are more progressive and will engage with new things Thanks for that, Will. Fascinating interview. What, so what do you think were the big uh, the big take-homes from it and the big things that maybe other publishers can learn from from that? Big take-home is give it a go. It's, as I, as I said at the beginning, it is quite a... You don't have to invest too much money into a podcast to, to give it a go at least. Hope, you know, we're not all Andrew Harrison. We can't all have big PPI payouts. I didn't get anything because I was a bit too young. But did you get much? PPI payout, can you remember? I got loads. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think I even, I don't think I even took out any loans, but I applied for it and I seemed to get some money, so I'm not gonna, certainly not going to turn it away. Yeah, excellent. Anyway, <laughs> I suppose the PPI scandal is behind us. Anyway, if you can get some money and you can take a, you can afford to take a bit of a career break or just launch podcasts, then you should go for it because you never know, you, you might end up with a huge success story. And it sounds like there's a lot of money in it and possibly a lot more money than PwC made out in its report that came out around a year ago, at least according to Andrew Harrison's experience. I think what he was saying about the BBC was interesting and we'll certainly make a bit of a story on Press Gazette's website. Maybe I've listened to a podcast on BBC Sounds, but for me, it's not so much of an issue. It's not the only window out there. I think I first started listening to podcasts on Apple or Spotify and I may have listened through BBC Sounds, but I think it's a really interesting area. And if he's saying that's an issue, then I think it's worth paying attention to. I think he's right, because un- until relatively recently, I got nearly all my podcasts from BBC Sounds. A lot of people come to BBC Sounds as a way of listening to the radio or listening to radio programmes that they missed. And then you stumble across the podcasts as a consequence of that. And then the BBC's done 
they've done thousands of podcasts. Yeah, I think that's a big issue. And uh, the BBC is obviously very good at promoting its own podcasts. And I think that BBC Sounds app is like a bit of a blunderbuss in that market. It's sort of dominating a bit. So I reckon he's, uh, he's, got, he's got a fair point. Area to watch. What's your favourite podcast then at the moment, Will? Ooh, at the moment? I'd say I'm going to steal your answer and say the rest is history. Yeah, that is one of my favourite ones, to be honest, at the moment, because I feel like for GCSE history, I had to learn about the Industrial Revolution, which I found quite boring. Didn't get to see much of the war stuff. And I think after that, as a result, I thought, maybe I'm not that interested in history, but it's really rekindled my love for it. So I think that's really interesting, and I love um, lots of news podcasts. I think Tortoise do some really good podcasts. I loved Andrew Neil's interview podcast. I think that was one of of my favourites. I listened to that around a year ago. How about you? I think my favourite podcast that I've listened to is probably The Sun King, which was on Audible about Rupert Murdoch. I remember you talking about that, yeah. Uh, that's that, that's worth digging out if anyone can listen to that. I like another history podcast called uh, You're Dead to Me on the BBC, which is like a more politically correct version of The Rest is History, but is it's still very good. So you've changed your tune since last week when you were talking about how great the rest is history is specifically because it was unpolitically correct. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not me. No. The one I'm listening to at the moment, a very British cult on the, the mm. BBC, which is a, that's a, the most popular at the moment, I believe. It's like an investigative journalism job, which is great. Podcast lends itself well to that. Yeah, and if I could have a mini moan about a BBC one, there's one. There's one I have listened to every episode of called Uncanny. Which I've, I've gone off it because it's it's a podcast which is quasi journalistic ghost hunting. Yeah, uh, my mum told me about that one. Yeah, it's it's quite un BBC, but I think they get away with it because it's a podcast, so it gets under the radar. But the conceit of it is, ooh, are ghosts real or aren't they? I don't <laughs> know. And then uh, this ghost hunter guy just goes around interviewing people, but he doesn't kick the tires of the stories. He just he's very happy to go along with this idea that ghosts are real and they are haunted. But You've I kind think, of sold it for me, actually. Yeah. Might give it a go. I think you have to ask who, who, who profits from those ghost stories. I think we've got lots to think about, lots to enjoy, and lots, lots to hopefully put into practice on our own podcast as we continue to grow it. Thanks for listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford, joined this week by William Turville, Press Gazette's Associate Editor, and expertly produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. You can read more about the future of podcasts and all the other interesting themes about the future of media on pressgazette.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.